Welcome everyone to this week's edition of the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup Group. Excited to see all your uh, your guys' uh, names primarily, I guess, uh, but also some faces. Uh, today, we actually have a phenomenal guest, uh, Lucas Lindsay. Uh, he's a, actually a good buddy of mine from college. He is in the commercial real estate industry out in Phoenix and is a development manager for Venue Projects, which is a you know pretty sizable and really cool uh, developer that's doing some really neat things in the in the space over in Phoenix. And uh, he, they specialize primarily in adaptive reuse projects. So I thought it'd be awesome to, for him to come by and explain what exactly that means and then explain a little bit more on top of that about some of the projects they've worked on and how they took the, these projects from starting point to to finalizing everything and making it a profitable project for all those, all those involved. So without further ado, I'll go ahead and hand it off to Lucas so he can explain a little bit more about the concept. So Lucas. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Um, good morning to those in my time zone. Good afternoon to those in the East. Uh, as Raphael said, I'm Lucas Lindsay. I'm development manager with Venue Projects. Very excited to be here uh, to talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart and means a ton to me, which is uh, bringing new life to old buildings and uh, saving historic structures and uh, revitalizing neighborhoods uh, by <clears throat> taking what are vacant spaces and turning them into people places, you know, that are, are a unique experience and where people love to hang out. Uh, so I, my background in real estate has been primarily through adaptive reuse projects, often uh, commercial restaurant retail, uh, but we've expanded into hotel and other things. So I'll talk a little bit about some of the projects we've done, but uh, first, Raphael, can everyone see the slides here if they're on my screen just want to have the obligatory check sure yeah go ahead and go ahead and project those if you'd like and and for those of you guys who are listening so we will also be posting this as a podcast format um so lucas is kind of going to describe some of the things that he is uh going to be talking about on the slide so uh don't don't worry about it we'll you, we'll be able to describe everything uh, accordingly so right on thank you so uh the title of this is how buildings learn because i'm going to some of what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to borrow a little bit from one of my favorite books, which to be sort of the Bible of adaptive reuse and value add uh, and the way this thinking strategically about how buildings change. And that's uh, a book by Stuart Brand. So you'll see some things in here where I'm pulling quotes and ideas uh, and applying that to some of the projects I've seen. But uh, so I got started with venue projects actually in 2010, just to give a little background. I was an undergrad student at uh, Arizona State. Uh, I was in a fraternity with Raphael. That's how we met and became buddies. And uh, at that time, I was studying urban planning. I thought I wanted to be a city manager, work in city management. Uh, but this <clears throat> internship opportunity with the Upstart development firm came through the listserv. And this was in the depths of the recession. There were really no job opportunities in, for planning students. And so I was jumping at anything I could for a summer internship. Uh, I walked into a coffee shop in downtown Phoenix, uh, one of the first times riding the light rail from Tempe, exploring a whole new world. And uh, I found these guys there. And they asked me what I wanted to do in five years. I told them I'd probably be in a grad student program for city management. And one of the principals looked at me and said, you know, it would sound, it sounds like it'd be a lot more fun if you were working with us on, on uh, redoing buildings. Uh, and uh, 12 12 years later, uh, he was right. Uh, we've had a, I've had a great time 
Uh, I actually did go to grad school, so I did a hiatus uh, for six years in Florida. But a few years ago, boomerang back to Arizona and uh, in the early 2010s. And now for the last three, four years, have worked with venue projects. Uh, and it's just been kind of a rocket ship ride uh, and a total blast. Uh, and got a lot of exposure to uh, value add and very entrepreneurial strategies for real estate development, <clears throat> often taking vacant, distressed assets uh, and turning them into places that people love to hang out. So uh, it's just been a great opportunity. And um, I want to talk a little bit more today about uh, my perspective that I've gained from that. Uh, so what is adaptive reuse just to kick it off? Uh, to me, I, I like to think of it as the, the ongoing change of style, culture, economics, economics that expresses itself through buildings. So buildings are these sort of empty vessels that are uh, subject to a myriad of social, economic, whatever cultural forces at any given time, natural forces even too. Uh, and <clears throat> how they adapt and react to that uh, is an open question. Uh, and when you see a building go from one use to the other, it's representative of all sorts of changes uh, that are impetus for that. Uh, and I think it, it's fun to think about uh, taking a building that was designed for, in, in uh, in a vacuum for one use and then decades later uh, attempting to convert it to a new use. It's a, it's a big challenge. It takes a lot of hard work, uh, but if you're able to pull it off, what you can create are very differentiated, uh, valuable assets that uh, people experience and taste, touch, feel, and, and live in differently uh, than, than otherwise sort of commodity projects. Uh, and as a result, you can have returns to reflect um, unique outcomes uh, and you can have great upside. But as I'm going to talk about, there's also a lot of risks involved <clears throat> and things you have to navigate uh, in order to get to the finish line. Uh, and, and rather too than just a textbook definition, I thought I'd open with a brief story about a property that I was a part of in Florida to give you a, a, just an illustrated version of what adaptive reuse is through the eyes of a real project. Uh, and this is, a, this is an abandoned gas station property in Tallahassee, Florida. As I said, I was in grad school for a time at Florida State. Uh, go Knowles. Work, yeah, go Knowles, go Brett. There, there he is. Uh, and I uh, really enjoyed that program. Uh, and I was, after I graduated, I was working in Tallahassee, running a co-working space in a business incubator. And I uh, drove by this building all the time, myself and a couple of guys that ran the incubator with me. Uh, Jake Kiker, Michael Wyden, uh, and those guys became my partners. Uh, and this was listed on the market, had a sign out front. We ended up putting an offer uh, on this vacant gas station. Had no idea what we were going to do with it. Uh, had to figure it out. Uh, offer was accepted. And then we had to come up with the money and the plan. So uh, this was an incredible experience. Uh, there's a guy named John Anderson in, who works in development in Atlanta. Uh, and as a part of the founding the Incremental Development Alliance. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, definitely look that up. It's a great group for teaching people how to get into small-scale real estate development. Uh, but he calls these buildings uh, somebody autos, which is the, the building that you drive by every day that's in your neighborhood or in your city that you're always saying, somebody ought to put a restaurant in there. Somebody ought to do this. Somebody ought to do that. And that was this kind of building. Uh, an old uh, mid-century gas station uh, with the beautiful kind of roof flare that architecture that appealed to us. And we just believed this could be something better. 
uh, we went through a, a fun, <clears throat> very bootstrap process that I think is replicable to some people who are getting involved uh, for the first time or maybe uh, early in their career. Uh, but we just, this is an abandoned building. We brought out generators. We advertised on Meetup, Facebook, et cetera, with friends and, and friends of friends. And we had uh, what we called a get-together. Uh, we programmed uh, some live music. We programmed some things with uh, local artists and street artists. Uh, and we just got people together with a food truck. And the whole idea was to start doing these series of events to do community outreach, really public participation, but through a very informal process and we started engaging with neighbors, getting ideas uh, for what the building could be, bubbling up interest from potential operators. So all this became a sort of bootstrap marketing and outreach strategy. Uh, frankly, we were just kind of having fun. Uh, we knew there was some strategy behind it, but it ended up paying off in ways that uh, we didn't expect with connections that we didn't expect. Uh, so we had local street artists come in and decorate and do a pop-up gallery. Uh, we had this great event with the artists, uh, some street artists uh, called Battle of the Boards. And they, uh, they showed up and we had these sheets of plywood that were painted white and they were given uh, a theme, which was knockout that night. And they had one hour to uh, paint whatever they wanted based on the, the uh, theme of the night. Uh, and so was, that was cool. All that was just happening in the background of the event. We also set out these boards called I Wish This Was. Uh, boards and we collected people's ideas with Sharpies on um, uh, 11 sheets of plywood. So it's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it was low key, but people loved it. And I think the response was really great. And we got a ton of ideas uh, with such a diversity of people that showed up. Uh, and I was really proud of what came out of that. Um, and through that and through our connections at the incubator, we connected with a local restaurant operator a uh, local architect and a local builder. And over the course of two and a half years, uh, took longer than we wanted, but uh, we were able to reposition this vacant gas station, uh, really peel back the structure, as you can see here, uh, and then bring it back to new life. And it's a great indoor outdoor bar space now and uh, bar and event space in Tallahassee. And we also have a small um, food operator who does gourmet mac and cheese. And he actually was a very popular uh, food truck operator in Tallahassee. And this, this was his first brick and mortar. So you can go there and get your um, gourmet mac and cheese and a beer and have a good time. And it, you know, it's just been a great space that's, that's really taken what was a vacant dead corner and brought new life to it. Uh, and you know, it's kid friendly, family friendly. That's been a real key to success there for us. Uh, we also, it's heavily programmed by the operator, which I think is key. Programming and uh, is a new form of marketing and outreach these days and really drives revenue to food and beverage operators. Uh, so this is an example of a great event they do called Drag Queen Bingo. Uh, and uh, it's very popular and people love to come out for it. So this is an example of a project uh, that I participated in. I think I was probably 26, 27 when that started. Uh, really, I was able to have that opportunity because I had two great partners that uh, had a little more track record. And I do believe that having the right team and having the right partners who fill in gaps and are strong where you're weak is really key to some of these projects because it, uh, it takes a village and it takes a team to uh, get a complicated adaptive reuse project done because uh, not everyone's going to know everything. So you need great perspective from 
people with um, construction background, design background, finance background, uh, and you really need to build out that well-rounded team. And I, I benefited from great partners uh, and was able to have that experience. So that's an example of adaptive reuse project uh, and <clears throat> learned a lot from it. And I've come to believe a few things through those experiences about adaptive reuse and doing a lot of reading and reflecting on it. Uh, I wanna share those with you today and then give you one example of a project we did in uh, Phoenix, a complicated adaptive reuse through venue projects. Uh, in central Phoenix, the, we took two mid-century office buildings and converted them to a boutique hotel. Uh, and I was, you know, I had the privilege of being a part of that project. I um, would love to share that one with you and then have some discussion, Q&A, et cetera. Uh, we can do follow-ups on any of the projects. I can um, be as transparent as I can remember on how deals came together, partnership structures, numbers, that sort of thing, but I'm happy to talk more about those. So three things I've come to believe about adaptive reuse. First is that uh, a building is never finished. Uh, the buildings are, uh, and Stuart Brand in, in his book, How Buildings Learn says uh, that the word building contains the double reality. Uh, and so it is at one time uh, an act, a verb of building something, but also that which has already been built. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting truism that buildings are never static. They either are in a state of some sort of state of decay if they're not being taken care of uh, or rejuvenation and reuse. Uh, and they're always changing in a variety of ways, day-to-day, uh, week-to-week, year-to-year, decade-to-decade. Uh, in his book, he, he gives this example of these two townhouses. Uh, and they found these are drawings from 1857 of uh, two historic row homes in New Orleans. This is the same two buildings uh, later in uh, 1993. And it's an interesting A-B test or case-by-case -case study to show you that uh, after every building is put into use, they then are subject to the whims of the people who use them, the market uh, that's exerting forces on them, <clears throat> the people who own them, and preferences and things change over time. And so you can see the two buildings that started the same, uh, both managed to live uh, because they kept themselves useful over the period of 150 years, but uh, they grew and changed in different ways. Uh, and their architecture was expressed in different ways. Their use and program and, and um, square footage changed in different ways. Uh, so it's interesting to see that you know buildings, they take all these different forking paths uh, and you know, no building is ever static and finished. I became sort of fascinated with this idea uh, and got obsessed with uh, Circle K mid-century retail stores in Phoenix. Uh, and I was interested in seeing how ch buildings changed through uh, the lens of these buildings. There was hundreds of these built and proliferated uh, in the 60s, 70s, uh, and early 80s in Phoenix. And uh, there's still over 170 some that, that remain today. And uh, I went through a process of cataloging uh, these buildings and seeing how their uses has changed. And I think they show, they're an interesting illustration uh, of how buildings are subject to uh, different ways of changing. Uh, and this is, a, this is only the best photo I could find of a mid-century Circle K, but they're, <clears throat> they were these simple 
uh, rectangular boxes uh, with long roof overhangs, glue lamb beams, uh, sort of indicative of mid-century style. And if you drive all around Phoenix, you see a bunch of buildings like this, but they're no longer Circle Ks because the Circle K business model over the years has changed. They moved to gas station uh, and uh, selling fuel. Uh, they moved to hard corners instead of mid blocks. And so as Circle K's business model changed, the type of building and structure they needed had changed. Uh, as a result, and after going through bankruptcy, they released hundreds of these back onto the market. So it created an interesting case study in adaptive reuse. And these buildings have been, because they're so adaptable, uh, largely kept and saved and reused. Uh, and so here's a variety of ways they've been reused in Phoenix. This one uh, is still reflects the look of the original Circle Ks. Uh, it hasn't been changed that much, but it's a flower shop. This is an example of a meat and food market uh, in South Phoenix, very similar, hasn't been changed that much. But then you start to see different ways that companies, business models, their marketing plans change buildings. Uh, and to the extent that buildings are able to accommodate this, uh, they're more likely to be saved or reused. As a, you know, so this is more of a corporate tenant put in one of these. <clears throat> they wanted to announce themselves with better signage. And then you start to see mom and pops take these buildings over. This is an old Circle K. That overhang has been hidden by a new fascia. This is now a comedy store, Bridget's Last Laugh, uh, a bar and a comedy venue in Phoenix. <clears throat> Here's a funny one where they punched a hole through the side and it became a drive-through liquor store uh, and, and put up a stucco addition on the, on the uh, roof overhang. Uh, and so it's a, you know, just, again, these all these divergent paths. This is one in South Phoenix where they cut the overhang off completely uh, and because they don't appreciate mid-century architecture and it became a uh, <clears throat> you know, place to get your tires aligned, right? So uh, again, buildings, they're, they're always changing. They're never static and they're subjects to everyone's different whims, wants, and, and desires. The final one here I wanted to show is they actually really embraced the oddity of the design. And this is a liquor store in central Phoenix. And they built up, uh, rigged up their own uh, structure here to sort of highlight it. But it's just beautiful to see the different way these buildings have changed over the years. Uh, Stuart Brand makes the point in the book that over the course of their lifetime, uh, the amount of capital invested in the building can often be more in terms of renovation than uh, the original construction of the building itself. Uh, and so, you know, the renovation construction market is, is much larger even than the new construction market in our country. Uh, and that's just an interesting observation that, you know, proves true that buildings are always in use and never static. Uh, he also makes the observation that places and spaces change at different, uh, different aspects of places change at different rates. So if you start to think about the different layers of a building, uh, some are changing at a slow pace and some are changing at a fast pace. Uh, so the interior of a building, the stuff like the furniture uh, is subject to changing day to day or month to month uh, as people move things around. Uh, but the layout of walls and the space plan of a building may only change every couple of years as the tenant turns over. <clears throat> and then every 10 or 15 years as new services are needed, those may change. Uh, and then, you know, on a multi-decadal basis, uh, the skin or superstructure of a building may change. 
uh, if it's going to go through a significant remodel or maybe an adaptive reuse to completely change the exterior of a building. And then only once every whatever 50, 100 years are there site level things that that uh, induce a building to change. So to the extent that uh, buildings are able to accommodate these different layers of change, uh, they may be uh, feasible to keep and reuse. Uh, and it's, it's proven true in my experience that uh, this different pacing of change, uh, and I'm gonna give an example of that when I talk about our, our hotel conversion in Phoenix. The second thing I've come to believe is that reusing buildings uh, really can be good business. And I think it's probably of interest to everyone on the, on the call and here in the meetup today, uh, but there really is an economic and business justification. Uh, it is case by case and it's definitely contextual. Uh, and you have to do the due diligence to, to figure out if in your case, it makes sense. Uh, but when it makes sense, it can make a great deal of sense and it can be a, it can be a home run. Uh, this is a photo of the sort of famous house that inspired uh, the house in the movie Up. Uh, this is a holdout from a woman who didn't want to be part of a, a suburban mall assembly. Uh, and so they actually had to build the mall around her house. <laughs> but uh, the, the thing about uh, adaptive reuse is that uh, when you're making the analysis of whether it makes sense to you as a good business decision, uh, it really hinges on analyzing the relation, the relationship between the existing land value, the value you can get out of the uh, improvements uh, and the replacement value of the structure that you're inheriting, uh, and then what your ultimate rehab costs are going to be, you know, executing your value add strategy. Uh, so you have to ask yourself, can you get a low enough basis going in? Uh, and then really extract enough value from existing structure uh, to justify that renovation and that change. Uh, and that's sort of a knotty, tough problem to figure out um, because there's risks in estimating things like construction costs. Um, but if you really truly believe in uh, the replacement value of some of the materials, architecture, design, uh, that you're inheriting, uh, you can leverage that uh, and, and, and make these things work out on a pro forma. Um, our company was born out of uh, principles that came from the construction industry. So we have a perspective on buildings and properties that we see inherent value in structure, uh, materials, finishes. Uh, in particular, in a high cost construction market, we see a lot of value in footings and walls and other things. Um, and to the extent that we can reuse those and leverage them, um, that's a positive contribution to the project. <clears throat> but whether or not a building is gonna be reused, I think at the end of the day is, is made very early on. The decision is made very early on in the project because it's a function of your basis going in. And so whether you can perform a proper reuse project uh, and not have to demo the building and build something larger, bigger, taller uh, is, is based on your initial costs. So that decision is made on the buy. Uh, and I think that that's something that everyone needs to keep in mind. Uh, it's hard to overpay and then bail yourself out on the back end. Uh, 
And I, I like to think of um, adaptive reuse buildings as having the best kind of leverage. So you may have typical bank leverage, but you're also getting something with this uh, that you're able to leverage in unexpected ways. And that's the fact that these buildings are emotionally resonant with people. Uh, they often have a story or history behind them, uh, and that's endearing to neighbors, customers. You get a lot of marketing and goodwill out of those things. So I think that reusing buildings, you know, it's often um, you may find it easier to make it through uh, tough neighborhood outreach processes and, and entitlement and regulatory processes because there is some amount of people rooting for you. And if you especially do um, pop-up events or neighborhood outreach, the type of things I illustrated at Happy Motoring, you really do start to generate a lot of buzz and interest. And those people become proponents. Uh, and that's something that, uh, you know, it's really hard in this world and the fight for attention to get people to back you and um, come to a meeting and speak towards your pro project positively. Usually it's uh, the negative opinions that come to those types of public meetings. When it comes to preservation projects and adaptive reuse projects, that's an advantage that you're able to leverage uh, if it's done well. And if you're able to execute a project well, um, I've seen in my experience, you create a very differentiated type of product. It's not a commodity uh, product. It's not a commodity experience. It stands out from uh, the urban fabric or, uh, or the market uh, and submarket around you. Uh, and as a result, um, you know, you can create a really great environment and situation for your operator, for your tenant. Uh, and if they're very good at what they do, uh, then you really can just double down and it, it can have very um, long tail uh, outcomes with great upside. Uh, and what results is something that we like to think of as income producing art is what uh, we call it. Uh, and it's something that is, because it's not commodity, and you're creating an experience. Uh, in a sense, you, uh, you don't have to compete in the same way as commodity projects because you stand out from the crowd. Uh, and it results in trophy assets that have a real legacy. And I think it's the type of work that, uh, yes, it's good business, but uh, again, it's legacy work that I think a lot of people be, can be proud of. Uh, people are excited to be a part of. Uh, you know, I think of one of the projects uh, that, that the venue did in Central Phoenix, uh, one of the principals, Lorenzo, his kids' handprints are in the concrete outcome, right? So it's, you know, it's something that people can be proud of for generations, uh, not just those involved, but the neighbors and the people around it. Uh, and if you have a good operator in there, everyone um, benefits from that. Uh, when we do pro formas, uh, we met, we like to talk about what we call those, uh, holistic ROI. So we do do you know, a typical a prototypical analysis for maybe your cash on cash return or unlevered yield on cost, what have you. But this, we also do these qualitative um, analysis. And at the bottom of all the pro formas, we call out what is the social return? What is the emotional return either for our team or others? What is the cultural return to the community? Uh, and we try to think through how are we representing those things in a project? Uh, because while they may not make it into the bottom line of a spreadsheet typically, um, it is real, it is there, and uh, we like to think about it. 
but while you know, I've also come to learn that while these things can have great upside, can be differentiated trophy assets, they are also inherently very risky, which is why they uh, have the potential for return because they uh, come with greater risk. Uh, so these are not kind of like your core type of real estate strategy. These are value add or very entrepreneurial, very opportunistic strategies, often taking again, very vacant uh, distressed assets, often having to re-entitle them or get variances and things in new ways uh, that deviate from existing zoning. So you're gonna have entitlement processes. Uh, there's a lot of risk with construction and understanding uh, and bidding a project when you don't necessarily know what's behind walls or what's under a concrete slab. Uh, so you have to have uh, contingencies and things in place. Uh, and then of course, the other risk is with any operation is can you get at least, uh, and is that person a great operator? Uh, so I think the keys to kind of navigating that in my experience have been to, to know your strengths and partner and hire for the weaknesses you have. Uh, so as I said, our company, for example, Venue has a construction background. So we have a very sort of builder mindset. Uh, and I think we have advantages when it comes to peeling back buildings and investigating them uh, early on in the process and anticipating as much as possible uh, how to design for uh, unknowns uh, or how to address details early on. Uh, but there are things we might be weak in that we need to hire for. And so we have a team built out of, of people with different skill sets. I bring a lot of the entitlement type of skill sets to the team and present at public meetings, get variances, that sort of thing. Uh, and that's based on a background in urban planning. So if you're going to build a team and get started in this business, um, they may not necessarily need to be an equity partner in your business, but you need to have great relationships with people that you can call on or hire for. Uh, to get a project done. Definitely involve architect, engineer, GC uh, early on in your due diligence period to try and anticipate as much as possible, maybe on small retainers. Um, but that is invaluable information if that's not something that you can bring to the process. Uh, and then in, in my experience, uh, it's been important because a lot of these are very custom type of construction projects to uh, have great operators side by side with you again, as early on as possible. Um, I've not done a lot of reuse projects that were speculative and then lease up on the back end. It's usually having a partner, a tenant and an operator um, hand in hand with you to, to help build out the building uh, to their needs in a build the suit sort of way. And that has been uh, important in my experience. Uh, and having a person who can operate well market well, has great customer service. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, after the building is quote unquote finished, uh, they're the one who runs with it and you're gonna need that no matter what. Uh, the third thing, third and final thing is it's not an easy business. Adaptive reuse is a full contact sport. You know, everything in real estate is risky, uh, but these are especially so. Uh, they can be emotionally challenging, uh, they can, you. You can suffer from lack of motivation or you're feeling like I'm constantly being assailed by problems, uh, constantly having to tackle unknowns. Uh, and you really just have to push through it, believe in it, uh, and be willing to take the hits. Uh, Mike Tyson has a great quote that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. 
And these projects are just like that. They're the type of thing that you're gonna get punched in the mouth uh, and you gotta know that going in. One of my favorite quotes from an adaptive reuse developer, they're based in Chicago, Balm Development. Uh, one of their principals said about a project in Arizona, we know we're gonna spit blood on this one. That's what we signed up for. Uh, and that's the type of mentality and mindset, you know, the tenacious kind of mindset, the entrepreneurial mindset you have to have. You have to believe uh, in getting it done because there are going to be a lot of people that don't believe. There'll be a lot of people that don't see a vision of how you can take an abandoned building in a disinvested neighborhood uh, and bring it new life um, because they haven't seen anyone do otherwise. Uh, so you've got to prove a lot of people wrong. So you've got to ask yourself, you know, do you believe in something that others don't? And not only that, but are you willing to uh, push through and do you see enough of a return on what we call uh, return on brain damage to run the marathon to the finish? Uh, and those are important questions. And not everyone may answer yes to those or they may answer yes on some projects, but not others. Uh, and that's fine, but it's just a matter of take, doing that analysis up front. Um, again, uh, it's important to get end user operator input as soon as possible. Um, and then just be as ready as you can for the fact that these are going to be iterative designs. You're going to have unforeseen conditions. So contingencies and a builder who has that experience is important. Uh, and then, you know, you're going to have lots of conversations about random things where old and new meet like flashing and waterproofing. So be ready for multi-hour long site walks and conversations about riveting topics uh, like that. And then uh, also important, set your partner and investor expectations early. Um, you know, the people have to understand and have the perspective that you can't control everything. There will be unknowns, but your role is to manage that on their behalf and you're gonna do so, you know, responsibly. Uh, people just need to know that you're aware that it's gonna happen. Uh, and, you know, to the extent that you can get investors and partners who have some perspective on that, and that's great because, uh, they'll be uh, less worried when those things come up. Um, but as the developer, there will be times too on long projects and reuse that people may be suffering from a lack of motivation. They might just feel like it's a, there's problems every day. So you really have to be the, the positive force who's there, uh, demanding that everyone is pursuing excellence, uh, but also encouraging people. Uh, there's a reason, there's a vision why we're here working together as a team. Uh, we are capable of doing it. You're the best of the best uh, and, and pushing through to the finish line. One other project I wanted to bring up is uh, an adaptive reuse project that we did here in Phoenix through with Venue. Uh, so Venue has uh, three principals, John Kitchell, Beatrice Kitchell, uh, Lorenzo Perez. Uh, it was started in 2008, heading into the great financial crisis. Uh, to take advantage of buying opportunities in the downturn. Uh, and over the last decades, build a great track record of reuse. Uh, and a lot of that culminated in the last couple of years with this larger scale project uh, that we took on as a joint venture uh, with a multi-generational larger developer in Phoenix. Uh, but we brought to bear kind of the execution, construction and design experience uh, on, uh, in, in the joint venture. Uh, but this project took two late 50s, early 60s office buildings on Camelback Road in Phoenix and converted them to a 79 room boutique hotel with food, beverage uh, and a pool. 
This is a photo of the first building that was built in 1958. Uh, very cool mid-century style uh, with kind of a waffle penthouse roof line. Uh, John and Lorenzo had this building uh, in the early 2010s. And then eventually through partnership, we're able to gain uh, access to the neighboring uh, building uh, and, and reparcel them into one property. So two office buildings, which uh, historically were actually built by the same developer in Phoenix uh, and then redeveloped by the same developer, uh, you know, 60 years later. So it's now called the Rise Uptown Hotel uh, at 400 West Camelback. This is a before photo of those two mid-century office buildings, uh, different in design from each other, but both indicative of different trends in that era. Uh, it's largely dominated by parking because at that time, that's what mattered to tenants uh, in the late 50s and 60s was pulling up to your office out front. Uh, they advertised for that. This is a, how it looks today, converted. Uh, so you can see we were able to <clears throat> reduce parking count quite a bit because this now exists in the TOD overlay area. Uh, and we were able to infill new food, beverage, amenities, and pool. Uh, so a series of new construction pad buildings, if you will. Uh, and then the two office buildings converted to um, boutique hotel. The office suites were originally very much like small office. Uh, mom and pop, um, small business operators. So they were small floor plates of, let's say, 300 square foot each. Over time, they'd mixed up, demised, cut up, combined. Um, but we went through an extensive demo process. Uh, and fortuitously, the, the floor plate kind of of 300 some square feet of the original office suite uh, was lined up quite well to the size of a standard uh, boutique hotel uh, room these days, so 320 square feet or so. They laid out quite well. Uh, we changed circulation and all kinds of other things, but these were a complete gut, complete rehab, all new systems, all new infrastructure, uh, all new stormwater underground, landscaping. It's kind of a soup to nuts redo. Uh, what we kept were really the exterior skins and some of the internal demising walls. It was really the architecture of the story uh, that was reused. Uh, and I just wanted to bring up the Stuart Brand's shearing layers again, because what the impetus for what allowed this building to change so drastically, this site, uh, was that there was a, a major change in the site level context, which is in the late 2000s, the light rail was installed in Phoenix. Uh, and so that level of investment by uh, the city and uh, regional governments uh, resulted uh, in a ch enough change in the market that it made sense to pursue a huge kind of site level change in this project, which came 60 years after these buildings were built. This is some aerials. This is before uh, progress uh, towards after <clears throat> the landscaping and all that. If you're ever here in Phoenix, it's just coming in really lush and blooming well. It's a gorgeous property and really proud to have been a part of that one. Uh, if you're ever in Phoenix and you want to stay at a cool um, boutique hotel located in town near great restaurants, uh, Rise Uptown Hotels, a place to be. As I said, though, there's a lot of challenges. This is just a short laundry list of the types of things that we had to go through. A lot of entitlement work, 
um, in my experience, is not really by right adaptive reuse redevelopment projects. You typically need some amount of zoning modification. Uh, that was true on this. A lot of variances for the pool, for the buildings, for the signage, um, use permits, where we had to take back a piece of city right of way from the light rail, uh, remnant light rail land that they no longer needed, but we needed uh, along the sidewalk. Uh, it was replatted, readdressed, and, and we also added uh, historic preservation zoning overlay that was voluntary. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, one, we wanted to pursue historic tax credits and two, uh, the historic preservation zoning um, allowed us to access the international existing building code, uh, which is different than just the um, IBC building code uh, and provide some amount of relief uh, for things like handrails and some of the existing conditions, elevators. And that's a, an interesting strategy. We have to more, talk more about that. <clears throat> but when it comes to reuse, sometimes the existing building code uh, is a great way to go. Uh, final thing, the one I'm most proud of on this project is we found some old photos and magazines of the original. Uh, they had a big neon sign out front for Don Woods Realty. He had his office in the penthouse. <clears throat> we were able to recreate that neon sign and uh, the penthouse is now the Don Woods rooftop bar. So very cool. This is a photo of that neon sign today. It's a beautiful addition to the property. Took like seven variances to get, as you can imagine. So definitely not legal in a normal signage code but totally worth it. So that's all I have today, but my question to everyone is, you know, who's ready to take that somebody out of building in your neighborhood and go through the brain damage of getting it repositioned? Awesome. And then I'm happy to take questions or we have a discussion and chat more. Yeah, oh, for sure, yeah. If you wanna uh, <clears throat> stop sharing your screen too and then we'll just go open discussion. First off, thank you so much for that presentation. Uh, I. I I think a lot of people, uh, especially in the commercial space, have an interest in this because it is it is there. There's two ways to do it, right? You can do the ground up development route where you buy a parcel of land and build something from scratch, and then also you can incorporate you know existing structures to create something unique and and preserve something. In particular, if it has a historic component to it that has you know that that is that is that a lot of the neighborhoods value. I mean that that in and of itself can be of extreme value. Um, two people yeah. in the in the neighborhood so that's awesome yeah i think a lot of what i've learned is there are developers who come to a property with the mindset of it being land and there are developers who come to a property with the mindset of it being a building and it's two very different mindsets for sure so yeah we'll, what we'll go ahead and do is we'll open it now up to q a uh, so if you guys are watching this on on zoom feel free to chime away in the chat box and then if you guys are watching this on uh, Facebook or other other media platforms, feel free to chime away as well, and I'll be checking these mediums. So Bruce has a question. Yeah, I I, I thought what a what wonderful reconstruction you've done, reuse. I'm so impressed. Uh, I was wondering that the uh, the use of the uh, the the gas station. Uh, yes. don't, don't you have to worry about digging up those tanks and and getting rid of them? We did. Of yeah. We did this. have to worry about that. Yes, you, it's a great it, it's a great. It's a very good question because I think the reason why I was sitting out there on the market so long is probably, especially the perception of that was keeping people from even 
investigating. Um, but it, it turns out that in the case of that property, uh, the, the guy who owned it and was needing to sell it actually owned an environmental cleanup company. And his whole business strategy is he bought DEP, DEP listed properties or whatever and awarded himself the contract to clean them up. So it had gone through uh, a process and was already in the phase two or whatever they call it. Uh, I, thank you. That's very, yeah, that's, that's how, because I was always worried about that <clears throat> as far as not to invest in a gas station, although they would be perfect. I, I did, I did convert two uh, homes uh, from one from the fifties, old Bedford stone, very well built to an, mm -hmm. orth uh, an orthodontic office. So they're tri-level to an orthodontic office. That's cool. And we converted a, uh, a, a Victorian home into a bakery and dessert cafe. But let me tell you, that's talk cool. about getting punched in the mouth. Uh, I think I lost a couple of teeth too, <laughs> because you know everything from getting variants or dealing with the church in the backyard that you know to make get their approval. I mean, it yeah. was it it was quite a, a, an ordeal. And <clears throat> by the way, I'm not in, I'm not in real estate. I'm an orthodontist. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And this is and this is my daughter's bakery. So, but I, I, can, I didn't want to build from scratch. It was great properties, the good land, the good locations. And, uh, that, and that's what's giving me my retirement income now is my rental. That's beautiful. So, it sounds like you're not just an orthodontist, but you're an entrepreneur to me. Uh, not so great, but I'll try. <laughs> well, we're all, we're all in some level trying to get better. But uh, what market was this in? Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. Oh. Louisville. All right, right on. That, that's where I'm at. Hometown crowd here. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, that's there's really some, cool. Yeah. And if you had to do a bakery and all that, then you also had to do the commercial kitchen and things. That's that's always uh, intense to retroactively put right. know, to any Especially, building, let alone a home. It's it's in Clifton, so it, it's a historic neighborhood, which made it even harder. Yeah. yeah. Did you get credits, or were you did you pursue historic credits? Actually, no, but I, I didn't know anything about it. Probably, is it still possible? I don't want to definitively say no and be wrong, but uh, it might be tough. I know that uh, actually Arizona's uh, historic preservation officer is on the call. And I know that she made a comment too. If a building's 50, over 50 years old, I want to shout out Catherine Leonard. Uh, who runs SHPO in Arizona. Over 50 years of age, contact your state historic preservation office. I would back that and say, <clears throat> definitely true. You know, they need to be part of your due diligence and outreach early on <clears throat> because uh, you may have access to resources that you don't even realize uh, as, in, you know, as, as we just touched on with Bruce. Sure. And, and it you. looks like it looks like Catherine clarifies. You said, hey there, yes, credits can be retroactive, but difficult to, to attain. So it could be something you, you look into. Uh, again, I, don't, I, I would imagine, I know there's different historic neighborhoods. I, I have a property in, in old Louisville, which is like a, you know, historic neighborhood here in Louisville. And, you know, th there are opportunities for historic tax credits, but from my understanding, it was, it, it was, it was related to the, the redevelopment of a building and you have to put in a certain amount in order to get a certain amount of credits, but I'm also not an expert in it. So uh, contacting someone locally to get a better feel for those tax credits could be a benefit for sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Of course. So Brandon actually had a question. He said, interested to hear how you develop your limited partner investment list. How do you market to interested partners? And then Brett, you'll be next. Um, so I've seen it in two different cases. First in Tallahassee, 
this was a smaller project. We initially bought that building. It was a different time in the market and there's very much a, a bias against that neighborhood. Uh, <clears throat> and it was an old gas station. So we bought that for 110,000. So we had to scrounge up whatever, 20 or 30,000 between three people. Uh, and then we went on, we did a construction loan and had to put up a little more equity when we did that. And then eventually converted uh, both the initial loan and construction loan into a long-term, uh, you know, took it out with long-term financing. <clears throat> um, in our case there, it was a mix of friends and family money uh, and people in our professional network. Uh, we were able to do that because we were, I think partly we had a lot of relationships to um, white collar professionals in town via the business incubator and getting involved in the startup community there. Uh, so not necessarily the entrepreneurs starting the projects or starting the companies, but uh, all the people who are ancillary to that, like the accountants, lawyers, et cetera, that were uh, wealth managers or whatever, who are a part of that ecosystem on the edges. Um, so that might be one way to get you know, involved with some of those types of meetups in your community and meeting you know, the guy who owns the insurance agency or uh, the interested orthodontist you know, who's enough of an entrepreneur to show up at those types of things. Um, so that was helpful to us, mix of friends and family money. It was smaller scale and entry level. I definitely recommend that people start small. Uh, your first project should not be your magnum opus biggest, you know, it's not your, your first project is not going to be your life's work and it doesn't need to be you need to build up small and incrementally, even if that means starting with, you know, converting your backyard garage to a ADU unit, <clears throat> whatever you can do to prove track record, uh, and then show that off through social media and relationships to as many people as possible. Uh, and then in the case of venue stuff, which is more capital intensive, it's definitely scaled up over time. They started small with just converting one retail 1940s retail strip to a restaurant. Um, but even that's, you know, a few million uh, in construction costs. Uh, <clears throat> that was a mixture of friends, family, close people who worked. Uh, these are people who had multi uh, you know, a couple decades of experience working in real estate and construction, again, mostly through the construction route. Uh, but via that, they knew a handful of higher networks, very successful subcontractors for one, electricians and plumbers, people who've built big companies. Um, those people uh, are in enough in the industry. They have good perspective. They want to invest in buildings. Uh, they also understand the perils of construction. So they're great partners to have. Uh, and they may even use their companies, you know, to help build it out. Um, and then they're much, much more of a partnership that way. Um, so there's a mix of, um, you know, high net worth, friends, family there, but again, professional contacts who they worked with for a while and gained trust in. Oh, for sure. That's a, that's a great response. Yeah. And, and I think as you start building, like you said, a reputation, you get one small project under your belt and you start showcasing that on, like you said, social media start building that personal brand pertaining to, you know, redevelopment. That's yeah. I'm assuming where, you know, a lot more contacts start coming down the pike. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, starting you, have small, to, you have to have a long-term perspective and mm -hmm. whatever, you know, like they say, play long-term games with long-term people. And, you know, you see things on social media, there's so much pressure to think like I'm not keeping up or whatever, uh, but it's not true. Everyone starts where they start and they have what they have. And it takes time to build. Um, so 
for sure. So Brett, I think, had the next question. Yep. I'll let him. Yep. Appreciate it. Lucas, thanks for uh, hey, man. the great the great presentation. Love, uh, love seeing you highlight that Happy Motoring project. It's, a, it's actually one of the first uh, projects I saw that really showed how you can take, uh, you know, that incremental development and, and make a difference in, mm -hmm. in an area and, and create a sense of community somewhere that didn't have it. Um, my question's more along the lines of um, hurdles as far as on the, the regulatory process uh, yeah. down mm -hmm. here. I'm, I'm in Jupiter and uh, worked with, who's now become a really good friend of mine. He bought a 1924 house that uh, was built by a pioneer family of, of Jupiter, uh, one of the original awesome. settlers and um, original pioneers of, uh, of a church down the street. And, and no one really knew the history of it until he, he bought it turned mm -hmm. into a drug house and a brothel and, and he painted it white and cleaned up all the landscaping. And I mean, it's, it's a beautiful property right now. And then mm -hmm. next door was a, uh, was an old furniture store, but um, you know, over the years as zoning came about, you know, those were all zoned residential properties. And when he bought it, you know, the, the furniture store next door was kind of grandfathered in as a, as a commercial use. Right. But the, the residential house, uh, we had to um, pretty much bang our heads against the wall dealing with our local municipality to, to rewrite the zoning code to allow the adaptive reuse of residential properties for a commercial use within a residential district. And they really tied us down to, you know, oh, you know, they really just came down to they didn't want a commercial property in a historic house in the middle of a neighborhood it had to be on kind of a more or less an arterial street with mm -hmm. all these other different requirements and whatnot um so i mean that, that was a hurdle and then now obviously uh, over the years we don't have many historic structures so now going through and him doing the adaptive reuse and dealing with our our building department and us almost having to do the research to say no, these codes are applicable. Those codes aren't. Uh, I was just curious if, if you ran into anything that was similar to kind of teach the professionals, like, no, this is actually what we're allowed to do. I think in, in varying ways that I've had that experience, yes. So it's always been, I think it's always true that you're, no one's going to be the, an advocate for your project like you and you know you're one of dozens as you know, as you know working in the city government itself that um you know they have a macro level view and there there's a ton of projects on their plate uh and they're just trying to get them throughput as much as possible so uh, especially now when the market is so busy uh, and you get such little amount of time and attention <clears throat> yeah you definitely have to to have done your own research uh and and be an advocate for yourself. Uh, we've had to do that on many occasions. Um, you know, just be, I guess at a high level without getting into much of it. What, what we've found really useful is, again, you have to be positive and constructive with staff. You want them on your side and to be advocates for you. So, uh, you know, going in berating people, uh, telling them they don't know what they're doing with their job, that's not very helpful uh, behavior. Probably in the long term is not going to get you a good reputation. Obviously, I know you know that, but uh, 
it, so you have to go in with the positive, um, constructive attitude. And I think you constantly have to ask why, you know, what is the rationale? Uh, why is that the case? Uh, and keep digging. So if someone gives you a dead end, uh, ask why. Uh, and just keep retreating back to, uh, well, if we were going to do this, let's assume for, let's suspend reality for a minute. If we were going to do this, how could we do it? You know, and, and get them to start to sort of ideate with you about, uh, well, I guess you could maybe park off the rear from the alley if you got a variance for maneuvering in the right of way or whatever. You're like, okay, well, it sounds like I might need a variance for getting maneuvering in the right of way. Uh, they may not offer that up to you uh, at first blush. So I think you constantly have to be an advocate and do that kind of digging. Yes, that's, that's always going to be true. Uh, and as I said, these projects are almost never by right. Uh, when you go through that change of use, the site, the structure was not built for, for what you're putting in. Uh, and depending on its level of intensity, it requires substantial uh, regulatory change, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it, it was almost like speaking another language to them going in there with, with this project. And it's like, look, just look to West Palm, look to, you know, New York, Boston, you know, adaptive reuse isn't a new concept. But no, it's as uh, old as, as buildings are. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think you hit on it perfectly. Uh, that, that saying you had at the beginning, the, the buildings have, have double reality or whatever that was. I mean, it, 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 that's the truth. And, um, you know, that's to me, that's what makes cities and towns unique, right? You're preserving the history and you're allowing people to walk through a building. Yes. Having a different use, but you're still telling the story and the history, whether it's through the architecture or the person that built it or the person that lived there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's why I love definitely, it. Definitely appreciate it. And, and anyone that's on the call, if anyone comes down to uh, to Jupiter, feel free to reach out. We'd love to, to show you the project and hopefully our restaurant's opening uh, next month. Great, man. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Really. Yeah. And, and I, I like the fact that you said, uh, you know, asking those questions of individuals at the, at the planning zoning and all these other, all, all these other entities, which, which you're needing to partner with in order to get the project done. Because a lot of times, like I thought, I know we talked about this before, Luke is like, sometimes you just don't know what questions to ask. So you're just trying right. to go through the process of saying, okay, well, if I want to do this, how can we go about doing this? Again, they may not offer it up right off the bat, but at least it gets you down the path of saying, okay, you mean to do this, you need to do this. And it's like, okay, well, let me go do some exactly. research to figure out what that actually means and just take initiative towards getting that project done. And, you know, again, if this is the first time you're doing something like this, I imagine it's a very, can be an overwhelming process, but, you know, if you're willing to put in the work and try to get things done, then we can. Yeah. Yep. So we'll, I, we'll go ahead and go I ahead. see a couple other real quick. I think I could hit some of yeah. these very quickly in the chat. Yeah, we'll, we'll have two more questions and then we'll go ahead and wrap up because I know it's everyone's time's valuable. So I want to make sure we're keeping on time. Um, well, I see. What was the name of the firm you mentioned regarding the gas station incremental something? I mentioned the incremental development alliance. Uh, I'm not sure if that's what it was, but that's a group that teaches people how to be small scale developers and get started. They do pop up workshops around the country, some of them now virtual. Uh, the, you can Google them. The, the next question, what comes first, tenant lease up to rehab or attract tenant? I, I, everything's case by case. You could do either. People do speculative uh, reuse projects. Uh, in my experience, the successful ones that I've been a part of, you have your tenants early on as partners. You're building to suit with them, alongside them. 
Uh, they may even be investors or partners in some cases. Uh, I, I would favor that more than speculative. Uh, try to lease up after, or at least a substantial portion of your building with your anchor in hand, and then maybe you're leasing up, you know, some a, a few of the rooms and building uh, parts of the building that you couldn't get done. Uh, you didn't have a tenant for early on. Yeah, and banks and banks like that better too. You know, they like the security of knowing <laughs> yeah, that you have yeah. a lease up. You have at least a portion, if not the majority of the building leased up before you start construction. Because uh, a lot of times financing is the hurdle. You got, especially starting out, you got to convince these these lenders that, you know, they're, by them taking this quote unquote risk with you, it is, it is, it is worthwhile. Point. I'm, gl- I'm you know? glad you said that. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. And then the last, I think the last question was with Holly. She mentioned, what website places, conferences do you go for networking, getting resources and learning about this concept? Uh, I, I'm involved in um, APA, American Planning Association, that sometimes touches on this. Uh, the historic preservation world uh, sometimes touches on this as well. I'm probably more applicable than APA in some cases, but those are both great. Uh, those all have their own conferences, whatnot. Um, the Incremental Development Alliance definitely touches on this, and I would talk to them. And then the other thing that we're a part of that uh, one of our principals, Lorenzo, has been very instrumental in is the ULI Small Scale Development Council. Uh, it's a small group of um, small to mid-scale developers across the country. Some of them with very impressive track records uh, and just a great group. Um, they get together regularly. Um, they host virtual stuff, but also conference. And um, they just put out a book. Uh, the, the guy who runs that, Jim Hyde, put out a book called Building Small, which I would recommend to anyone. Great book. Uh, we happen to be uh, featured in that book as one of some case studies, uh, which get into the nitty gritty of, of deal structure on one of our projects. Uh, so that's a fun one, uh, fun read for someone who wants to gain some perspective. Yeah. And for those of you guys who are listening on YouTube or the podcast, we'll go ahead and include the link to that book below so you guys can see it um, as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Lucas, thank you so much for stopping by today. We really do appreciate all the insights you did provide. Yeah, Again, like I, like I said before, adaptive reuse is something that a lot of people that are in the commercial real estate industry or have interest in for that exact reason that, you know, it, it, you're allowed, you can take something that had had been abandoned or let left left to just deteriorate and, and bring it new life and maintain some of the historical aspects in particular if you're located in some of these cities that do have a history like you know Louisville even Phoenix uh, you know back in the 50s like you were referencing with the Circle K so um, thank you again so much as far as like people wanting to get in contact with you and learn a little bit more about you maybe want to do business with you in the future how, how exactly do they do that? Uh, well, venueprojects.com, of course, for our company. Um, you can email me at lucas, L-U-C-A-S, at venueprojects.com. And then <clears throat> I'm most active on Twitter uh, at Urbanist, uh, Urbanist with no A. So that's what was available. And that's what I am. Sure. Yeah. And we'll go ahead and include that in the show description below. So if you guys are listening to this on a podcast format, I'll be in the description. If you guys are watching this on YouTube, it'll as well be in the description. So Awesome. Thank you again so much, Thanks Lucas. Thank you all. Oh, of course. Thank you all for stopping by. We really appreciate you guys supporting the meetup and, and being involved and we'll see you all next time. Awesome. Bye y'all. See you guys.